we've been visiting here, and we just have the utmost, and uh, we just admire this body of believers so much. And we already have just this deep love for you guys. And um, I get to travel the world, uh, and I get to sit in various churches. I get to be a part of worship in a, in a multitude of different countries. And um, there's one mark that I see on churches that set them apart. And much to my dismay as I stand before you today, and probably for Ken and even Kevin, uh, it's not the preaching. And I was about to say it's not the music either, but goodness, like between Oh Holy Night and then, wow. Um, I'm not crying, you're crying. Like, that's all I got to say, because it was just a, a wreck. But it, it, it sometimes isn't even in the worship, because that can come and go. But it's in the people. It's in the people that make the church and set, set it apart. And so we see that in this church. Um, when me and Tiffany first came, it was one of those things where everybody didn't just greet us and, and move on to the next person. It was, hey, tell us about yourselves. How can we pray for you? How can we join, join you in what you're going through in your stage of life? Um, hey, can we have you over for dinner? Can we take you to coffee? There was just so much love in this room. And it was even, even a deeper love for us because, as uh, Kim was mentioning, our cousin is Danielle, and you have absolutely loved her well. Um, in this stage when uh, Cole's gone, I mean, it's hard for her. And we see it and we feel it um, is her cousins and the way you've loved Amelia and the way you've loved Savannah and the way you've loved Danielle has been just a rock solid uh, foundation for her. And we love Cole too. Um, I don't want to leave Cole out of this. We definitely love Cole too. But we just see that and that's what makes this church. And so we are abundantly thankful for you um, and the way that you have loved and the mark that you leave. And at the same time, it's an honor to stand here where Ken and Kevin stand and they proclaim bold truth and so much wisdom flows for them. It's, it's an honor for me to stand here. Um, and with that, I just pray that this time that we have together this morning to share in the word would be an encouragement to you and it would also deepen our affection for Christ. Um, that's ultimately what we're here for. And so... Uh, as we enter this time of Christmas and Advent, and for those of you that don't know what Advent is, it's basically this time where we can come together and we can adore Jesus. We can look at this Jesus. We can hold him up and say, um, man, we, we long for you to come. We are longing and we are expecting and we are waiting for you to come. And so I'm just praying that this message here, and while there's no biblical mandate for uh, Advent, and while... There's nothing about that for the church or as a family or as an individual. I feel like it's something that can provide some spiritual, uh, uh, it's really just a spiritual riches for us as we enter into Advent. And so I just pray that we would drink in the wealth of Advent. And, um, and as a side note, if you guys don't have any resources for Advent, um, I'd love to share some afterwards with you that I have um, that I haven't written, but I would highly recommend. And so... Um, if you want to, if you want to participate in that with your family, please come talk to me. I'd be more than happy to give you those. Um, and so I love this quote as we begin to think about um, the truth that we're going to talk about today. I love this quote that John Piper had about Advent, and here's what he says: He says, "An Advent illustration for kids and those of us who used to be kids and remember what it was like. Suppose you and your mom get separated in the grocery store, and you get and you get start to get scared and panic." And just a side note, I, I don't know how many of you are in this situation ever, but uh, growing up, my mom would be the one that is scared and panicked because she let terror go and not sure what's going to come around the corner. Maybe a kid with chocolate on his face. No, my mom once affectionately told me that I was her 
uh, free spirit. And she's such a kind and compassionate woman. I'm not sure it was meant as a compliment. But anyways, <laughs> jumping back into this quote. So just as you start to get scared and panic and don't know which way to go, and you run to the end of the aisle, and just before you start to cry, you see a shadow on the floor at the end of the aisle that looks just like your mom. It makes you really happy, and you feel hope. But which is better, the happiness of seeing the shadow or having your mom step around the corner and it's really her? This is what it is when Jesus comes to be our high priest. This is what Christmas is. Christmas is the replacement of shadows with the real thing. And so, yeah, exactly. Well said. John Piper nailed it. And that's what we want to talk about as we enter into the season of uh, Advent. That's where we want to go. That's where our heart wants to turn. And so that is why we patiently wait. We search our souls and we have uh, hopeful expectation, which leads us to the passage we're going to be in today, which is Isaiah 9. So if you want to go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 9, that's where we're going to be spending a lot of our time today. And so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. I'm going to go ahead and read the word. So if you'll follow along with me, we're going to read verses 1 through 7 of Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. They rejoice, they rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken on this day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and the peace that there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we want to come and adore you. God, we want to see you uh, in this time of Advent to look at you and wait patiently uh, with expecting what you will do when you come and how you will redeem your people. And so, God, we just humbly come before you as we go through this passage. We know that you say in Isaiah 55, when your word goes forward, it accomplishes the exact purpose you have for it. And so we pray during this time that your word would go forward and it would penetrate our hearts so that we might be able to hear from you and then spread this good news to the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen. So when it comes to a passage like Isaiah in the Old Testament, you really have to begin to look at it from two different angles. You have to look at it two different ways. And the first is a historical uh, look at it. You have to look at it historically. And what I mean by that is the context. So what is it that when people are hearing for the first time what Isaiah is saying, what are they thinking? What are they feeling? What is going on around them? When I hear something, oftentimes it's, it begins to, I begin to think about what's going on in my world right now in the time of this, what's going on. And so that is exactly how we have to look at it. And then for Isaiah, we have to look at it prophetically as well. So what is Isaiah pushing us towards? What is he looking and foreshadowing for us? What is coming in the future? 
And so that's kind of a two lenses that we need to look at a passage like Isaiah 9. And so first, in the historical sense of this passage, it's around the 8th, uh, 8th century B.C. And so it's a really a time of war. And there's one army that is rising up and just taking nations by storm. It's the Assyrian army. Uh, I had this really great uh, analogy that I was going to use here uh, about the Alabama Crimson Tide. But then last night, last night I watched the Georgia Bulldogs uh, go down with some dear friends. And it pretty much like hurt my heart. And so I think it's a little too soon to go there. Um, and so although I kind of did, um, I, I did put a little salt on the wound. But uh, I do want to talk about a, 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 a decided to go in a different route. And there was a movie that I loved growing up called The Little Giants. And so if anybody's seen it, it's a great movie. Uh, Rick Moranis is in it. It's, it's great. But the premise is there's this team, the Cowboys. And they are the little league team in town, and they are dominant. I mean, they've got a kid named Spike on their team. And they've got kids that have beards in the fifth grade. And they've got (laughs) kids that have muscles that I've never seen in my entire life. Like, these kids are ginormous. And then you have the Little Giants. And the Little Giants are this team that are just full of misfits. And and the kids, there's one kid that walks out of the house in bubble wrap because he's so frail. His mom's afraid he's going to get hurt walking down the street. Um, there's a girl on the team named Icebox. I mean, there's just so much going on in this. And so, um, and it's kind of the, what we're seeing here. There's the Cowboys, which are the Assyrian army. And then there's the Little Giants, which is everybody else. Um, and so the Assyrian army is coming after all these nations. And they're taking them left and right. And then all of a sudden, Ephraim and Syria, they decide, hey, whoa, everybody's getting taken out. What if we formed a coalition to try to push back the Assyrians? And so they formed this coalition to push back the Assyrians. Um, and I know we all love a good underdog story like the Little Giants. But let me go ahead and kill the drama. And that was no pun intended. Um, this coalition is about to get squashed. They stand no chance against the Assyrian army. And so that's what's going on in this time of Isaiah chapter 9. But that's not where it ends. And, and so that's where the prophetic side of this passage is going to come in. And so what we, where we see that come in is in Matthew chapter 4. So if you want to flip with me to Matthew chapter 4, I think this gives us a great picture of the prophetic side. And so we'll pick up. Um, this is obviously after Jesus has been born. Um, he's about to begin his ministry. And so we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 12. And he says here, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went with him. He went and lived in Copernicum by the sea, the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Did y'all catch those two names, Zebulun and Naphtali? We just heard those mentioned in Isaiah chapter 9. We see this prophetic vision that Isaiah had in Isaiah chapter 9. And now it's being manifested. It's coming alive in Matthew chapter 4. And just in case we miss it, because I feel like Matthew knew exactly who would be reading this 2,000 years plus later, uh, me, Adam Platt, that it takes me a minute to catch things. He doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 14. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region... And the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. This is really good news for us in this room. That while it looks bleak on paper what's going on in Isaiah 9, it's going to be redeemed in a prophetic vision later on in Matthew chapter 4. 
So for us Christians in this room, we have a firm foundation right here that we can trust God in everything that we go through. In every season of life that we have, we can trust God. And so for those of you that are in this room as well that aren't believers in Christ, this is a huge picture for you to see that what God says he's going to do, he does. That when he says, I'm going to do this, he's going to follow through on it. And that's good news for you. And I pray as we go through the rest of this passage, you would be able to see that even greater as we dive into more of the truth that we see in this passage. But I think it's huge for us to be able to see that. And so, um, and, and I think for, for us, this is kind of the lens that we're going to have to look at this passage. Those are the two lenses. And they kind of funnel everything. We funnel everything through those. And it's kind of a backdrop to where we're going to go in this passage. But I want us to make sure that we understood the historical side and the prophetic side of what's going on. And so... Um, As we do that, I just pray now that as we dive a little bit deeper into this passage, that we would see how it can deepen our affections for Christ and also for this season of Christmas. And so moving on, we must first see that Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. And this is what I mean by that. If you look with me in verse 1, it's a transition verse. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, it's a transition verse. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. And the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. So this is a transition verse between the end of chapter 8, really verse 22, uh, all of chapter 8, but really verse 22. And then it transitions us into uh, chapter 9, verse 2 through 7. So this one verse is a bridge that kind of puts it over there. And so if we look back at chapter 8, verse 22, it says this. And they will look on the earth and behold distress and darkness. The gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into a thick darkness. So that's what we have going on. That's what's going on. And so I feel like it's wise at this point for us to kind of put a little uh, definition on darkness. What is darkness? Um, And so for me, uh, what I glean from Scripture is that darkness is the absence of God. Darkness is where we, uh, it's void, It's, it's wickedness, it's without hope. That is the biblical Definition of darkness. We see that there is no hope. Um, and so that is what these people are in the midst of. And then you see it. It's gloom and anguish. This is what is going on. But it doesn't stop there. That's where this verse transitions. And so if you keep following along with me. It says, But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shined. Man, is that not good news? That once what was dark now has the option to be light. And so we really need to put a definition on light. What is light? And so for that, we look at John. John gives a great description of that in John chapter 1. If we go to John chapter 1, this is what he says about, you can go there if you want, or you can just listen to me talk about it. But here, in John chapter 1, verse 4, he says this, In him was life, and the light was the light of men. The light shined into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There is a man sent from God whose name was John, and he came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So what is light? Light is Jesus. Light is hope. Light is love. Light is everything that we want. And so here we see this great transition. And and it's even greater when you think about Zebulun and Naphtali and what they were going through in the midst of this. 
So for, for just a little bit more background, Zebulun and Naphtali were part of the promised land. And, and they disobeyed God. They didn't kick out all the Canaanites. They didn't kick out all the pagans. And so that brought on a watered-down faith, if they even had faith at all. It brought in sin. It brought in all kinds of darkness into their community. And this was once part of the promised land, and now it's just infiltrated with darkness. They allowed sin to enter their camp. And that's a big deal. But here we see that God doesn't just leave them in that. It's this transition from darkness to light. And so we have to see that. We have to see how good that is, that oftentimes when our darkness comes, when darkness comes at us, we have the opportunity to sink into despair, or we can rise into the light in faith and love and hope. And so that's my prayer for us, is that when we see this, when we see this transition from darkness to light, that we would rise into the light, that we would see how God is in this way. And it's really cool, the uh, two nouns that he uses in um, Isaiah uses gloom and anguish. They're both set in a temporary setting. They're both set in a temporary setting. So when he talks about gloom and he talks about anguish, it's something that's not going to be forever. It's but for a small time. And so when he even transitions it, the light that is used in this is actually permanent. So what is temporary is darkness. What is eternal, what is permanent is light. That's a good word for us today. That what we are going through, when we were in darkness, it is temporary. But when we have hope in Christ, when we have the love of Christ, that is permanent. That will not go away. It will never change. And so that is good news for us today. Um, and so, yeah, we just look in that and, and just hope in that. But Isaiah doesn't seem to want to stop with just pouring on really good truth. So he goes on in verse 4 and he says, For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder... The rod of, the, of his oppressor you have broken on this day of Midian. And so the first part of this, the yoke, uh, the staff, and the rod are all likening back to the exile from uh, Egypt. And so this is him coming through on his covenant promise to be their God and for them to be his people. Man, this is really good news. We see that God is now bringing his people back to him and saying, I am your God. That's really good news. In the midst of darkness... When we feel like everything around us, we, we are unworthy, we, are, uh, we don't deserve anything. When we just want to waller in our self-pity, hear God saying, I am your God and you are my people. Rise up into that. But then, at the very end, you have broken as the day of Midian. And I love this part. I love this part because it goes back to Judges. It goes back to Judges chapter 6 and Gideon. And if, if we don't know a lot about Gideon, this uh, one verse, 615, sums up a lot about who Gideon was. Gideon says this, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is weak in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I don't know about you, but Gideon seems to have a problem with self-confidence. Um, he basically just feels like, well, poor me, I'm just the weakest guy, and I come from the weakest clan. But then we follow along in chapter 7 of Judges, and we see this battle that uh, Gideon is about to go in with the Midianites. And so we see this battle. And he comes to, in chapter 7, he comes to the battle with 32,000 people. And so you're thinking, okay, he's got a pretty decent army. But then the Lord says, man, Gideon, that's a lot of people. I think we need to shred this down because a lot of people won't really believe that I did something if there's so many people. So he was like, hey, just tell everybody that has fear and trembling to just go ahead and head out. So 22,000 people were like, okay, we're out. 
I don't know what that says about the leader Gideon or about the people. Or it's probably an indictment on both of them. But 22,000 people leave. So now he's down to 10,000. So you're like, okay, this is where he's going to go to battle. This is where he, and God then stops again and says, nah, man, this is still too many people. So then he does this thing where he's like, hey, we're going to test the people. God says, we're going to test the people. Take them down and they're going to, if they lap water like a dog, then we're going to keep them. If they don't, we're going to send them home. So 300 people passed that test uh, and stayed with Gideon. So 300 people lapped water like a dog. And that's how they are going to be the chosen ones for battle. I'm not sure about the strategy of that, but I don't, I don't know many people that use that uh, today. But uh, it seems to work here. So Gideon, man, these cards are stacked against him. He went from an army, he went from a, a weak leader, from the weakest clan, to now he's in 32,000 people. So now he's still the weak man with a weak clan, but only 300 men. Uh, it's a big deal for him to go into battle. And so here's where it gets even greater. Um, the strategy for taking over the Midianites is, hey, we're going to give everybody a trumpet and we're going to give everybody a jar, basically for a lantern. And we're going to surround or go around the Midianites. And so they approach the Midianites and Gideon sounds the alarm and they blow their trumpets and the Midianites flee. They run out. They, uh, they leave. And that is how Gideon defeats the Midianites. And so it is one of those, first of all, I don't know what, where we've gone wrong, but the stealth bomber has nothing on the trumpet. Like, that's our new battle strategy. But uh, here's the deal. Like, this battle, God was trying to show that it's me that steps into battle. It's me that fights this battle. And so that is good news for us. It has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God. We are frail. We are weak. But it has everything to do for God. And it's, it's not like that ends there. Um, if you look back in the four again, the yoke and the rod are both symbols of suffering. It's suffering inflicted and it's suffering that they have taken on themselves. And so right here in this battle, God ends suffering. God takes suffering away. That's good news for us that when God intervenes into our lives, he takes the suffering away and brings us this light. And so that is, that is great news that in our helpless state of being drawn to this darkness, to being drawn to suffering, God not, doesn't look on us with wrath, but he looks on us with light for the benefit of our lives and for his glory. And so we get to enjoy the fruits of victory from a battle we did not win. God acted, God won, and he beckons us to enjoy victory with him. That's good news for us today, that he invites us into this. And so Isaiah continues on in verse um, 6 to kind of give us an insight into this battle strategy. He wants to show us how this battle was won. How did we enter into something that we didn't deserve and could not earn? And so here he says, for, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Simply put, a child was born. Not just a child, but the king. The high priest was born. That's what that battle strategy was. The battle strategy was to bring Christ into the world. For to us a child is born. This speaks to his humanity. This speaks to who Jesus is as a human. That he came to us in the flesh. To us a son is given. That speaks more to his royal priesthood. That speaks to his bloodlines. That he is given by the one true living God. 
That's really good news for us. And then as you continue on, the government shall be upon his shoulders. Remember, we just read in four, the staff for his shoulders. That's basically God taking the burden that we have on our shoulders and placing it squarely on this baby. He takes the burden that we bear and he puts it on a baby. That's good news for us today. And so we continue on into this verse in 6 and 7. Oh, man, these names. Like when you talk about name mentioned here, it's in the highest form. It's in the highest form. When they talk about name, it basically declares who you are. It is a announcing to who you are. And so when it says wonderful counselor, man, that's his right to rule. He's going to be a great ruler. When it says mighty God, that's his power. That's his majesty. That's who he is. When it says everlasting father, that's the relationship he desires with us to be our father. Not just for one day, not for one year, not for a couple years, but forever. He wants to be our father. And then it says prince of peace. That's the society he is coming to create. He's coming to create a society of peace. He is making peace between God and his people through his life, through his death and through his resurrection. That is good news for everyone in this room. That is really good news. And so, man, this is just a overwhelming love that is shown here. That he just overwhelmingly loves us. And not, Isaiah doesn't just finish there. He goes on at the very end and says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal. I don't know about you, but zeal is a good word. Zeal is something that we can look at and say, in our helpless state, he didn't look at us and say, wow, look at those people down there. Maybe I, maybe I should save them. He looks at him and says, man, I am going to run after those people. I am going to save them. I am going to give them life. And so let us, let us see that. that. This is something the Lord didn't just do because he had to. He did it with zeal for us because he loves us. And that's a great truth for us. And let it sink in in this season of Christmas when we anticipate a baby coming that we have a God that comes after us with zeal. And so as we kind of wrap this up, there's a couple of things that I want to talk about. Christmas will never have its full effect in our hearts until we realize that we need a Savior. And that's the bottom line for us today. Christmas will never have its full effect on our hearts until we realize that we need a Savior. Our world tells us that we can do anything. Our world says if we put our mind to it, we can achieve it. And we have this all around us, this Hey, self-improvement, you can do this. Like, you don't need anybody's help. You can do this on your own. But we need to see, and we need to let the Lord penetrate our darkness and give us the light. Because we can't do this on our own. We are helpless. Until we see our need, we will never fully grasp the birth of a child that we are eagerly anticipating. Let our hearts grow deeper in our need, in our understanding of our rescue. That God went to battle for us. That he won victorious and he now offers the greatest victory ever known. And this is a sweet, sweet victory for us. So this gospel is good news. I mean, that's what the literal translation of gospel is. It's good news. And so we have a savior. But please let me hear. Let me let me say this. Please hear me. While this is great news for us, it's great news for the world, too. There are a few mentions in this passage in Isaiah 9 about the nations. In fact, when he says in verse 1, Galilee of the nations, this is the only time Galilee is referred to as Galilee of the nations or even Galilee of the Gentiles. So it's, it's more of a 
holistic approach. It's more of a, uh, he's got the whole world in mind. He also says that a little bit later, you have multiplied the nation. Man, these are references to the world. These are references that this isn't just good news for this room right here. This is good news for the Blackman community. This is good news for the over 3 billion people that have never heard about the love of Christ. Let that sink in. There's 3 million people that have no idea who Christ is today. And that should burden our hearts. That should really set in that we have a task. We have a mission to share this love with our community. To share this love with our families. There's probably in this room co-workers, family members, friends that don't know about this child. What are we doing to go share with those people? What are we doing to go share with the nations? And so we go, we soak up this glorious child, and we share this child boldly. We step into people's mess just like God stepped into our mess. And we expose them to the light. There's no better way, in my mind, for us to adore this baby than if we were to bring others to adore him as well. For us to truly adore him, we bring people with us to adore this baby. And so that's my prayer for this season for us, is that we take this baby, we hold him high, we see his beauty, we see his love, we see how he has rescued us from darkness and brought us to light. And we let that soak into our hearts. But at the same time, we take that, we take that message and we go to our community around us.